Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast, where we're uh, coming off of a couple of weeks where we were talking about preaching and teaching with Blake Baston and Lance Ward. Hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. It's fun to sit around and talk about not just the preachers that have shaped us and the ones that we listen to, but in a lot of ways, the preachers that we've looked forward to training and investing in ways that we've become better teachers and preachers. This week, we're really going to shift the focus as we do. We, we have two what, what seem like disconnected passions on this podcast. Uh, we talk about books of the Bible. We're talking about ministry. We're also talking about what's going on in the news. We're talking about political theory. And there is a connection between those two. And I think we're going to get to that today in this discussion. Uh, we're going to take an article that was written in the, uh, the most uh, recent foreign affairs by a guy named Tom Nichols. And he is a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, which sounds really, really important. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I would love to have that on my resume. He really is trying to get to a topic that uh, we've probably all felt the effects of, even if we never named it. And the title of the article is The Death of Expertise and Why That's a Giant Problem. So he's got a book out uh, called The Death of Expertise, uh, written in 2017, where he goes into this subject more fully. But this article is just a great encapsulation of his view. And so what we want to do is just discuss this article, talk through it. And as we we're prepping for this, I think it'll be a little bit different than some of our discussions on the podcast because I'm really not sure what I think about this. Same here. Uh, I, I agree with him. It's a problem. I'm not really sure where to go from uh, his statements, and I'm not sure exactly how to take advantage of it. In other words, could this be bent towards something positive? I, I half have it in my mind that this might be good for Christians, but we'll have to see how the discussion goes. Yeah, the, the, one of the reasons I'm excited to talk about this is I feel like there have been several times we've talked about an article where it's more informative. I'm, I want to make a point about this article. Uh, here's what I think about it. This one, I really don't know. I just want to discuss it. I think it's worth discussing. I'm not sure I agree with him on the problem or the solution, but that'll be the fun of of diving into it. So he begins with a couple of really good studies, and these studies actually pinpoint exactly what he's talking about. The first one, they did a survey. The Washington Post did a survey uh, asking Americans if they thought that the United States should intervene militarily in Ukraine. Now, uh, this is during the Crimean affair with Russia, and only one in six Americans could actually spot Ukraine on a map. Uh, The median response, they said, was off by 1,800 miles. Apparently, they had people thinking that Ukraine was in Latin America. Australia is is an interesting one. Uh, But what they found was, in that study, the people that were the furthest off were actually the most enthusiastic about their opinion on what the United States should do in Ukraine. So the next year, they, be, they do another, another study. This time they're asking, should the United States bomb the country of Agrabah? And you get a certain percentage of, of Democrats and Republicans answering the Republicans, a third of them say we should, 13% say no. For the Democrats, 36% say they're opposed to it, 19% uh, are, in, are in favor of it. And uh, as you go down a little ways, they reveal what many of you guys have already been thinking, and that is, isn't Agrabah the fictional country in the Disney movie Aladdin? <laughs> yes, yes it is. 
So the interesting thing about this is 43% of Republicans and 55% of Democrats had a defined view on whether or not we should bomb a fictional cartoon country. And that's really a great entry point into this conversation, which is the death of expertise is most often manifested in the fact that people have really strong opinions and they have next to zero knowledge about the subject they have their opinions about. And what he's talking about is there's even places in in our society where this kind of ignorance has become a virtue. And I, I think most of us probably know that anecdotally. It's interesting to see it with some statistical support surrounding right. it. But uh, just just as a statement, I think I would agree that this is true. What do you think? Oh, I definitely think this is true. What I didn't realize is the correlation that he points out between the less you know and the more certain you are. Mm-hmm. I, I really expected it to fall more along the lines of, say, Democrats and Republicans or uh, liberals and conservatives or religious people and not real. I figured that it would break along certain lines, but it appears to be across the board that the less one knows, the more certain one is about your competence. And that surprised me a little bit. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I want to coin this militant ignorance or belligerent ignorance or something like that. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't put a term to this phenomenon, but I think we all know this. There's when you're whether you're talking sports or politics, or whether you're talking about uh, something in your life, and it, it manifests itself differently, but there is a phenomenon we're probably all familiar with, and that is the person that you have the least confidence in their knowledge is often the most insistent on telling you what you should be doing, uh, whether right. that's uh, the person that, that actually doesn't know anything about sports and has a hot take uh, that you know is off, but they are insistent about it. And then in more vulnerable examples, there are times when you're asking for something, whether it's advice about a life decision or a relationship, and uh, a person that you absolutely don't trust or, or don't think knows anything about the situation is just dead set on giving you advice. This spans academic, personal, religious areas. I think this is a feature of modern humanity. And the first point he made that you pointed to is, there are some studies that have been done that your knowledge about something to a certain extent until you become an expert and your confidence about talking about it are initially inversely related to each other. Right. Uh, high ignorance, high confidence. And that goes down as you move towards a more knowledgeable person. And then it rises again when you get to the expert level. Um, I want to throw out a a term here that he uses at at the source of this to discuss for a minute. He says that this is the fault of low metacognition. Uh, And what he means by that is the ability to know what you know. What does this influence that phenomenon or not? That's a really good point that he makes. I I've been thinking about that, this idea of, is it a deficiency in the individual in the sense that one is not like a, in emotional or relational situations, you can have kind of a low EQ. In other words, you just don't realize what impression you're having on other people. So you have low self-awareness in some sense. We know that that's true in relational circumstances. Some people are more aware of their social uh, effects than others. He's saying that you have the same phenomenon with knowledge and lack thereof. 
I don't know what I think about that. I do think that that, however, is being fueled. So let me take this a little different direction and ask your opinion on this. For example, you have all kinds of media outlets, whether it's your news uh, on television, whether it's uh, the New York Times, if you remember, recently ran full-page ads talking about how trustworthy they were in the face of our president saying that they were not trustworthy. But here's the interesting thing. Watch and see. Like, uh, for example, our local television news station used to talk about how accurate they were. Now, the only time you hear that word accuracy is when they're talking about tornado prediction, their meteorology department. They say, we give you accurate forecasts. Well, that's good. But when it comes to the rest of the news, you know what their uh, motto is, is your trusted news source. Hmm. It's not your accurate news source. It's your trusted news source. So I want to go back and answer your question this way and maybe suggest that if is the problem in the individual that they just don't realize how little they know and consequently have an inflated sense of their own knowledge? Or is it a matter of I don't trust the sources that I'm hearing and I trust my own opinions, however silly or uninformed they may be? I don't know. What do you think about that? The, the way I would frame this, I think, uh, which corresponds to what you're saying, is there's an internal problem and an external problem. And at the beginning of this essay, at least, the way he leads off is there's a self-awareness issue. That's I think that's what he means by metacognition. It's it, just a fancier way of saying people that don't know what they don't know are less self-aware than people who do know what they don't know. In fact, What's surprising is, he, he points out, it's not just that people know more and therefore have higher confidence in what they know. It's that the people that actually know more, and now we're going to talk about this later. I don't think this is always true, but the point that he makes is the people that know more know more about what they don't know mm-hmm. in addition to what they do know. So he's, he's drawing a line between um, a person who is ignorant uh, on a certain topic and a person's knowledge of their ignorance on a certain topic. And his point, at least, is that as you learn more about things, um, and I think there's probably a conflation of variables here, you actually become more self-aware of what you are inclined to speak to as an expert and what you're not. I think that's a very idealistic view of the world. As we'll talk about later, I think there's some reasons why people distrust experts that are great reasons to distrust experts, and I think they do have to do with with bias and self-awareness. But that would be the internal problem is how do we think about what we think? How do we think about what we know and what we can speak intelligently on? But there's also an external problem. And that would be where he brings his second point, and that is there's low accountability for our processes of knowledge in society. And this is twofold. There's low accountability for what people say. So outside of the academy and certain specialized environments, there's no check. There's no peer review. There's no, uh, I mean, we, we do talk about fact-checking, but fact-checking in and of itself is a, is a phenomenon that I think proves this point. Uh-huh. Uh, there's no editorial guard against what you can and can't say and whether or not it actually lines up with the truth. Secondly, there's low accountability for the learning process in total. So how do you know that someone has done the hard work to learn things? And, and here's where he goes out on a limb. 
learning things is not just being able to marshal facts. Right. So one of the interesting trends that, that we see in our society right now is people have the highest accessibility to facts at any, than at any point in human history. You can marshal facts for anything. What we have the least amount of is an understanding of whether or not the things that you think are factual are in fact factual or not. So you go and you look up a topic on Wikipedia. Chances are it's pretty good information. You go and you check other sites. How are you supposed to know when you have two competing claims on the Internet which one is true and which one isn't? Uh, Or how are you supposed to know which two news, news stories are true? Well, and that comes back to, to my main point on this, and I don't know if I disagree with him or not, but to me, the biggest factor in this whole thing is trust. Because when it comes down to it, and you do not have the expertise to evaluate between two different opinions, you're going to go with some other factor, and it's not going to be based on expertise. For example, uh, if you've got two opinions from two doctors... One says Mm -hmm. we're going to do one thing, the other says another. You really don't know enough to evaluate those two things in in most cases. And so you're going to go with some other non-scientific kind of a factor. So I think a lot of this comes down to trust. The problem with trust is the factors that we use to trust people or trust sources really are completely disengaged from the accuracy of those sources. When it comes to things that are... Uh, not part of our immediate life. Let me give you an example. Nobody has this problem with plumbing. In other words, I don't know much about plumbing, but I'll tell you what I think we should do to fix the plumbing in my house. I really don't. In fact, I think I need an expert. I want somebody to come out here and fix this plumbing, and I can tell that they're an expert because my plumbing now works, and I don't have Mm -hmm. any illusions about my ability to do that. And at the same time, and this is pretty ludicrous, I might say, you know, I really don't know much about the history of foreign policy, but I'm pretty sure we should bomb Agrabah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it may have yeah. something to do with the, with the relative issues. What do you think? Yeah, let's take a moment and, and think about this issue because this is at the core of the problem of expertise is what kinds of experts are we inclined to trust and why? Yeah. And which, which kinds of experts are we inclined not to trust and why? First of all, I think there is a physical reality in play when it comes to whether or not we trust experts. So if we can see the problem, if we can see how they're going to accomplish it, um, then we have more trust in experts. And in fact, I, I'm glad you brought up the trade example of this because I think um, most people are are okay with trusting people who have trained in a specific trade. Right. So, for example, um, I had a dead battery in my car this week. I know that the I, I know certain things about how the battery works. If I watched a YouTube video, I might be able to change it. None of that inclines me to go ahead and change it myself when I have somebody that knows how to do it. Or so at, at no point did I stop the guy and say, actually, you know what? Yeah. Um, I've never done this before, but what you're doing looks pretty easy. I'd like to step in and do this. Yeah. Now, or, that didn't even cross my or mind. Or you should do it differently. Right. Or had you said do, to him, do, you should be doing that a little differently. Yeah, that, that thought never crossed my mind. But there are a lot of areas where there's no uh, there's no machine, no physical, uh, spatial reality where it's hard to know what an expert actually is. Right now, the me- the medium between those two might be something like medicine. 
Yeah. Because I've thought for a long time, informed consent in medicine is a really important concept. So I don't for a minute want to say that doctors shouldn't tr- shouldn't get informed consent. I'm not I'm not making a statement about our bodily autonomy. Right. But what I am saying is informed consent is such a limited concept with how complicated medicine is right now. Right. So, you know, Carson is a, a pharmacist and I love asking him about different drugs, how they work and all that because I have no expertise in that area at all. In fact, the last time I took a medical science class uh, or even a physical science class was my junior year of high school. So you'd you'd be (laughs) hard-pressed to find somebody less qualified to talk about that than me. And I think it's fascinating. But let's say he were to ask me, hey, you know, it's your medicine, it's your body. Here's the two drugs and here's the pros and cons to each one. Here's the mechanism by which they uh, go into your body. Here's how they actually release the medicine in your body. How informed could I possibly be to make that decision. Right. Ultimately, that comes down to trust. And, and I wonder, is that because of the complexity of the process? Is that because we can't see the process working? Is that because we believe superstitious things about medicine in general? Why is it that we're inclined to trust certain experts and not others? You know, that's a good, that's a good question. I, I do agree with you on medicine. Let me tweak it just a little bit. If I walked in and uh, I said, I've got this pain and uh, it's probably a pulled muscle and the doctor said, no, I actually think you have cancer, I'd uh, probably not insist on my diagnosis and go home. You know, I'd probably say, Mm -hmm. you know what, I respect your expertise in this and, and so that's serious and I'll tell you what, you tell me what I need to do and I'm going to do it. So in that case, I would. I'll tell you one thing I've noticed, though, that people don't trust doctors for anymore are things like diet. There have been so many competing claims over the last decade, certainly over the last 20 or 30 years, about, well, this is good for you. And five years later, oh, wait a minute, it actually causes cancer. And now we think Mm -hmm. this is good for you, and that's good for you. So it depends a little bit on how immediate the effects of it are. Uh, True. That you can see, like the plumber... You know, he's either going to fix my plumbing or not, and I'm going to know in a few hours. And I'll know within the next few weeks if the doctor knows what he's doing or not. I may not know for 10 years whether or not the diet he prescribed for me was correct or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think part of it is, I I think one thing I I, I do have a strong opinion on is the more skin you have in the game, the more likely you are to be discerning, be uh, discriminating, be whatever about the advice that you're getting. Right. So I think, so Nassim Taleb's book, uh, Skin in the Game, and his whole project is based around this. When you and the other person have skin in the game, that usually is when the best decisions are made. Now, in certain situations with experts, one of the reasons that we don't trust them is they don't have skin in the game. So if I have skin in the game and the expert does not... I'm immediately inclined not to trust them because I don't think they grasp the situation. And secondly, I think we assign bias more freely. We assign ulterior motives more freely when we know that the advice that an expert's giving is never going to come back on them in any negative way if they're wrong. So the ideal situation then is an expert who is giving an opinion with skin in the game when you have skin in the game. That may be the most trustworthy set of circumstances for expertise. 
That's an astute observation. I think you're right, because if, if this is about trust, our trust level goes up significantly when we realize that person is in the boat with us or has some skin in the game. Or as a matter of fact, most people will listen to, let's stick with our doctors for a moment. A lot of people will stick with a doctor who's very compassionate. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to go to a doctor who has a terrible or an arrogant bedside manner. But those two things don't necessarily correlate with their skill as a doctor and how likely they are to cure you. But our trust mm-hmm. level is vastly influenced by someone who actually cares or is engaged with us in some way. So I think that's a very astute point. That's certainly, if you don't have metrics, if you don't have data saying, okay, well, Dr. A has done 2,000 of these operations and nice Dr. B over here hasn't done this since uh, they were in medical school 30 years mm-hmm. ago, you know, that's, that's not a hard choice to make, but we might trust one more than the other. Right. So before we move into a, a, the implications of this, which I think will be the most interesting part of the conversation, I just want to throw out two more thoughts about modern knowledge and expertise. The first one is we don't typically think about how we know things, but in this kind of conversation, I think we need to. And, and if anything's missing in this article, this is where I would put my finger. And maybe he deals with this more in the book, but uh, he doesn't seem to have any kind of grasp for intellectual virtue as opposed to scientific research. So he seems to think that if we would just trust the people doing research, life would be better. Mm-hmm. But almost every single one of us is going to recoil from that. And it's not because we don't trust the scientific method. It's not because we don't trust certain kinds of research and, and observation. It's because we don't trust the intellectual virtue, the character, exactly. the ethics of the scientist. That's really what it comes down to is I don't think many of us distrust science as an enterprise. And in fact, I think we probably should be hesitant to distrust science as an enterprise, as long as we're okay with the assumptions that you make in the scientific method, what you can and can't actually say because of the scientific method. Those concerns aside, where most of us have a hiccup is, do we trust the person who's interpreting the results of the science or do we not? And that's the same with everything. Mm -hmm. Do we trust the person who's interpreting any kind of data, not just hard science? Because most of the time, we're not talking about whether or not we trust the findings of biology or, or something like that. A, a lot of this is more relevant when it comes into things like politics and religion, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. But, but before we get there, I think it's important to understand that the way that we know things is not typically by thinking them through by ourselves. The way that we know things is typically by receiving them from a trusted source whom we have, we, we have confidence not just in their method, but in their virtue and their character as a person. So the easiest example of this is how do children learn things? Well, kids on the whole don't learn things through experimentation. Right. And they don't learn things through logical rigor. They learn things because their parents tell them things and other people tell them things. And they trust their parents. They think, well, you know, my parents are... are trustworthy, high character, high virtue people. Uh, They have decided this, and so I'm going to believe it. That's how beliefs are formed. And as adults, we do the same thing. We don't necessarily uh, take our parents' word for it anymore, but whoever we've established as an authority, we take their word for it in the place of actually doing the work to discover it ourselves. So that's one of the things I want to say is 
intellectual virtue, trust are at the heart of what it means to acquire knowledge. The second thing is our world that we live in right now, the, the, what, we, what we would refer to as the postmodern world, at its core is an assault on the way that we know things. That so maybe more than well anything said, yeah. else, the postmodern phenomenon is, is a discussion of what it means to know. Is knowing something that is a two-value right versus wrong, black and white enterprise, or is knowing things actually a power struggle where the, the most powerful narrative wins and it has no connection to what is actually true in reality or not? Do you think that's a good assessment of where we are? It is. It's almost uh, like you are working on a doctorate in the field of epistemology or something. Uh, but yes, that is very well said. And he, uh, in the article, he quotes a study from 2015 from Ohio State University, and it really speaks to what you're saying. He said they split people into liberals and conservatives, and they found that certain kinds of news stories, when they exposed them to certain kinds of news stories, both groups tended to discount scientific theories that contradicted their worldviews. So that it, mm-hmm. it wasn't that one group was more rational than another. They both held their views. And he says, even more disturbing, the study found that when exposed to scientific research that challenged their views, both liberals and conservatives reacted by doubting the science rather than themselves. And I think mm-hmm. that illustrates what you're saying is that we tend to learn. The way we go about learning is not as dispassionate as we would like to believe. So the, the point of this, I mean, I think this is an interesting article in its own right. Uh, I have no doubt that we've got people listening to this that are like, we just spent 25 minutes talking about knowledge and epistemology. What, what does this have to do with anything? Uh, it has import in two areas that uh, I want to spend some time talking about, and that would be politics and religion. I think this is where we see this phenomenon the most acutely. And I think this is where it actually has the biggest impact, the biggest possibility of bad things happening, the biggest possibility of good things happening. Right. So when it comes to religion and politics, to me, it seems like there are some really similar trends. First of all, I think people are likely to discount expertise, but maybe for a different reason than we talked about in the medical field. I think there is there is a similarity in the sense that there are experts, there is specialized knowledge that is complicated enough that informed consent from a political standpoint would be very difficult to achieve. But even more than that, I think these are areas where we have to ask the question, is it even possible to be an expert? Is, is there the possibility that someone can be an expert in these areas? And if they are, does it matter at all? Right. I think with religion, I think the answer to that's going to be yes. With politics, I lean towards no. I'll tell you something that happened just this week is uh, John Bolton resigned or was fired, depending on which you know account you want to listen to, which that's also kind of interesting. But he basically uh-huh. is no longer the national security advisor. And you would have to say he's one of the smartest guys and best informed guys on foreign policy that I know. 
And then you have our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who is obviously still there, still enjoys the confidence of President Trump, and by all accounts has done a great job. He's also extremely well-informed. But what you saw happen was the two of them had different opinions, different expert opinions about how we should proceed in uh, Afghanistan and how we should proceed in certain other areas of the world and got to the point where their opinions were so at odds that one of them was going to proceed and the other was not. And so I think in the area of politics, foreign policy, perhaps economics, I certainly think this about economic policy, is there are a lot of people that are very educated about it, but I'm not sure that the trust level with any of those experts is very high at all. Because mm-hmm. you have an expert just as qualified who thinks exactly the opposite. This is where I think most of us, I know I feel this way, probably bring some negative assessments of expertise in these two areas into the conversation is, well, how am I supposed to trust an expert when there are knowledgeable people, well-trained people, they all have Ivy League degrees, they all have experience, they all have uh, alphabet soup after their name, and they believe two completely different things when it comes to areas that feel pretty subjective, like politics and like religion. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether that's the difference between uh, high-ranking officials in, in, a, in a similar political party or at least having similar political views, or whether that be in America at least, two highly educated, smart, articulate people coming from two radically different places in two different parties mm-hmm. saying that we should do the exact opposite thing given the, a similar set of circumstances. Right. That's where it's easy to just throw up your hands and say, well, there must not be a right answer to uh-huh. this. Or uh, we may not be able to know what the right answer is to this. And this is where I want to go back to something that Nichols points out in the article, which is there's a difference between being able to marshal facts and actually being an expert. So expertise is more than just understanding um, you know, a certain set of data points, where they all fall, how many there are, that kind of thing. And I would, I would liken this to the difference between the way you grow up thinking about history versus what history actually is. Yeah. So you grow up, at least in, in middle school and high school, you think that history is memorizing dates, understanding what actually happened. That is really not what history is about. Now, it would be nice if everybody could agree about those things because then we would do better history because that that certainly is a foundation to it. Uh, But a lot of times we don't agree on exactly what happened. But, But that becomes a moot point in the sense that once we decide what we do know, true history is assessing the question of why did it happen? Who were these people that were doing these things? What does that tell us about the present? What does that say about the way that human beings function? What does this tell us about the nature of a nation? I mean, those are the questions of history. And so the facts are essential for that, but history is not limited to those things. And that's the way politics is. That's the way religion is. Um, maybe it's a, it's a bright contrast in religion because we all know people that know a lot about the Bible we know people that have a lot of specific knowledge about um, history or, or whatever it is that pertains to their study of the Bible, who we would say are not experts in the Christian life or in right. following Christ. Um, and we would also say don't understand the knowledge that they do have. So specifically in religion, how would you define expertise or at least 
why does expertise matter when it comes to religion? That is a that's a great question, and I think there's there's a twist here. So, if, if you take the standard definition of expertise, so for example, suppose you have a question in the New Testament about how to live the Christian life and you know the Greek language, and you know a lot about the church fathers, and you've got a lot of information, and you begin to bring it to bear, and you start to compare and contrast you know, all these different ways of looking at the text and putting it into its historical setting, the grammar, etc. And you have a couple of people who all have that same amount of data, but they're going to apply it to this text a little bit differently. It's easy to have a bias when you come to a text of, of the New Testament in that way. And you can have people that are expert in terms of knowing a lot. And that matters because uh, I think coming at it with ignorance is not likely to get you to what the, what the Scripture is actually trying to say. But given two people who have the same amount of knowledge, I'm always going to go with the one that actually lives out an authentic Christian life. Because for mm-hmm. one, it's an academic exercise. For another, it's actually been internalized, not just in their brain, but also in their life. I think in religion, we believe that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean spiritual things are discerned by ignorance. It simply means right. spiritual things can't be discerned merely by mastering certain facts. I think it's just a more holistic approach. Uh, I don't know that I have a basis for saying that, but that's where my trust level would go. Well, I think there is a basis for saying that. And the the topic of bias, especially in religion, is is a fascinating topic because on, on a lot of topics, we're trained to say, well, if somebody's biased, then you should discount their opinion. So you say, well, that person's biased. And what you mean by that is, well, you can't actually count on them representing the facts accurately because they want to believe what they want to believe no matter what. So we say, oh, that person's biased. We use that to discount what that person thinks. I think what you're saying, and and I would at least make this argument, the reverse should be true when it comes to things like Christianity. Now, again, what we want to come up with is a model where uh, bias is not negative, but it also doesn't imply ignorance. It doesn't imply uh, shading things a certain direction when you know the opposite is true. But here's a great example. So when I go on to look at Kindle or um, uh, Audible books or great courses or something like that. What I've always found interesting, and and it's the same phenomenon with the History Channel, for example. Mm -hmm. Why is it that if you want to go listen to a course, like the Great Courses course on the New Testament or on Paul or on the Bible, that almost all of them are recorded by Bart Ehrman? So for for those (laughs) of you that don't know, Bart Ehrman is probably the most famous detractor from the authority and the truth of the scriptures of uh, authorial intent. I mean, the guy is an agnostic at best. He's an atheist at worst, but he teaches Bible at North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Right. And because he has some pretty significant academic accomplishments, he gets the opportunity to speak into all kinds of things because of his academic chops that other people wouldn't necessarily get to. Now, this presents a really interesting question for Christians. So it's not a surprise to me that a secular person would say, well, who's an authority on the New Testament? Well, Bart Ehrman, I mean, he's been on everything. He's Mm -hmm. written all these books that are published with these great publishers, and um, he's made these breakthroughs and discoveries. But I would ask somebody, when it comes to a, a course on the New Testament, 
and I say, your teacher is going to be Bart Ehrman. He's an agnostic. He doesn't think any of this is true, but he really understands ancient manuscripts. He understands the transmission of the New Testament and that kind of thing. Uh, what do you think about that? Right. Chances are there are two groups of people. There, there, are the, there is a group of people who's going to say, well, at least he's not biased. Um, so I will listen to what <laughs> right. he says. And then there's a group of people that are like, well, no way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't learn the New Testament for somebody that doesn't actually believe the New Testament. And those are really interesting responses because on the one hand, for the people that say, well, he doesn't have a bias, he clearly does have a bias. Exactly. He has a bias against the factuality of what happened in the New Testament. Right. He's clear about that. And I think that's the first thing we have to admit when it comes to religion or religious studies is everybody has a bias. Right. The things we need to be asking are, are they open and honest about their perspective? Are they honest about the bias that they're coming from? And two, if they are, is it a good bias? Right. Not all biases are created equal. So is this person's bias helpful in the discipline? Is it something that's actually going to lend more credence to something? Does it build trust or does it take away from those things? Right. And then on the flip side, you would say, uh, I'm not going to take a thing from him because I want to take a class from somebody who actually believes this. You have to ask the photo negative version of that question, which is, okay, if you take it from somebody who believes it, are they still going to give you the best information that led them to those conclusions? Or are they just going to give you their conclusions? Are they going to shade information? Are they going to hide something? In both cases, I think we have to get into investigating bias or what I would call perspective, narrative, something like that, because those terms don't have as negative a connotation as bias. But no matter who we end up with, it's going to, it's going to come down to questioning their assumptions their perspective, their narratives, their bias. Well, I think you've really uh, hit the nail on the head for me, and this applies to Nichols' point as well. I think we could go a long way toward reestablishing confidence and expertise if people would simply reveal their biases. I think the biggest uh, erosion of trust comes when you feel like you are being deceived. I don't distrust a used car dealer when I walk in and I know you'll say, again, I'm not trying to malign people, but you will, you'll say an awful lot of stuff to get me to buy a car because that's mm-hmm. your job, that's what you do, that's who you are. I don't disrespect you for that, but I, I basically adjust for the bias. I think where we lose trust very quickly is when we listen to someone and then find out that you have a bias that you were trying to hide. And I think if we would be open about our biases, uh, I think that would go a long way towards getting us back to trusting expertise and out of the mere trust for whatever reason I can come up with. Right. So if I were going to wrap this up, and I'd like to hear your, your final thought on this in a minute. If I were going to sum this up for religion, and and honestly, I think this is true for politics as well, even if we don't tease it out quite the same way. When it comes to religion, specifically Christianity, what I think the Bible is telling us is something that we need to take into consideration is, as a Christian, it's not that you have access to knowledge that is different about the physical universe than non-Christians. And this is where it gets a little tricky because there are are things that Christians know that non-Christians do not. But I'm not talking about Christians being better mechanical engineers than non-Christians. Obviously, there are things that you can know about God that that are pieces of information that you learn by being a Christian uh, that non-believers don't know. 
But what the radical thing that the New Testament presents is it's deeper than just the factual knowledge you have. It's the kind of knowing you have that's really important. As a Christian, so Paul's clear about this in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, there, we despise the wisdom of the world, but that doesn't mean we don't believe in wisdom. Right. We actually believe that wisdom is discerned spiritually. And then he, he finishes the chapter. He says, so we have the mind of Christ. Right. When the Holy Spirit indwells a person, the way we think about the universe is different. Right. So we actually believe something different about the nature of reality than non-believers do, than we did when we were non-believers. Right. We believe that the universe is animated with the presence of God. We believe that we were created, our anthropology is that we were created to be in a relationship with God and that growing in that relationship actually brings life in every facet of our life. I mean, we could go down the list of the things that the Bible presents about the nature of reality. And the key is the key. So expertise biblically defined is not just how much you know. It's not what you can recite about the Bible, although those things are interesting and true. It's do you have a mindset and an approach and a set of assumptions and beliefs that are shared with the Bible or do you not? So you can have a very knowledgeable person who has assumptions that are radically different than the Bible. That person believes that the only thing that exists is what we can see and touch and feel and and test scientifically. They're a materialist um, and they're very knowledgeable versus a person who has zero knowledge about anything, but understands that um, the temporal, the physical world is passing away, but the eternal world will be forever. And I would say that uh, the second person has more expertise biblically than the first person, although I'd be inclined to say they have less knowledge. Right. Um, So for us, the, the goal of expertise, at least when it comes to our faith, is a worldview question more than it is a facts and volume of information question. We really want expertise defined by is your view of the universe, human beings, ultimate things, end times things, are are those informed by the assumptions and narratives and shape of scripture or not? And then we can talk about facts after that. I think that's where I would land on this. What do you think? Yeah, just to sum that up, I completely agree, is there's a reason that the Scripture says, and not just a reason, but this is a very profound statement, is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Mm -hmm. that is the dividing line right there. I think that underlines what you're saying. The Scripture has known this from the beginning, is that at the beginning of knowledge, at the beginning of wisdom, you have God. If God's not at the beginning of that, you really have an untethered endeavor. It's going to take you yeah, in a lot so, of directions. What, yeah, and so I don't, what you're not saying there is that if you're not a Christian, you can't know anything. Exactly. Uh, because obviously non-Christians can know things. They can have vast amounts of knowledge. We can be helped by the knowledge of non-Christians. Um, but what we're saying is the same process of acquiring knowledge that we would use to discern whether or not a person is an expert in religion should enlighten the way that we think about Knowledge among non-believers, their biases still matter. What what we've been tricked into in the public square, at least when it comes to politics, is Christians have biases, and and religious people have biases, but secular people are free from bias. 
Right. So you you have religion. So you want to separate church and state and religion and politics. And then you have secular people who don't have religious commitments. So what they think is actually just factually based. That's not true. That's not even remotely true. Everybody needs to be able to assess. This goes back to Nichols' uh, topic of metacognition. Everybody needs to be able to assess how they came to the things that they believe. What are the underlying assumptions you're making that that influence the way that you arrange the factual information that you have? So back to the foreign policy thing for a minute. We could know all the same things about foreign policy from a factual level, but we have different values and commitments we bring, which right. allows us to construe those facts differently and come to a different conclusion. That is the nature of knowledge, is doing that, is casting a narrative over a set of data points. That's what expertise is. An expert is somebody who understands the right narratives, trends, metacognition to bring to a set of points. And so we need to spend more of our time assessing that, assessing the narrative, the assumptions, right. than um, when two people ag- agree about the facts but come to different conclusions, just saying maybe we can't know anything uh, about that. Now, that's really, really hard to do in politics. It's really difficult to do in religion. But I think that is our task when it comes to the role of expertise in both of those. Um, so I'll give you the last well, word and, on that. And I just say simply this, that that is not a task. That is not a task that can be delegated to experts. We'll all be accountable for making that kind of judgment of, of that narrative. And that's why I think in the realm of Christianity, I believe that's one of the reasons we have the revelation of God to guide us, why we're given the mind of Christ, not so we can know all the facts, but so that we can understand that narrative, whether or not it is true. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. We'll be right back.